Uh, thank you, everyone, for such a warm welcome. It's really lovely to be here um, for the next uh, five weeks um, we have together. And uh, Mason has left us to continue making our way through Luke's gospel, which I think is uh, a great choice. I think it's a really important piece of writing for us as followers of Jesus today. So I'm going to begin with a bit of background on the gospel of Luke, and then we'll look at this passage in depth uh, before finishing by thinking a bit about what this passage means for us, particularly around how we listen to God well. Luke's uh, reason for writing his gospel was to communicate to others his belief that in the person of Jesus, God is bringing about a great fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible and giving hope and purpose to all creation. And now this is significant for all people, uh, but particularly for those who are marginalized by the ancient society, uh, as well as those who experience marginalization today. For example, Luke particularly emphasizes the stories of women. He begins with parallel stories of righteous, upstanding women, Mary and Elizabeth, who show up their husbands in terms of their understanding of God's will and their faithfulness in seeing it come to fruition. Luke also records Mary theologizing about the coming Messiah. He highlights the role of the prophet Anna in affirming Jesus' messiahship. And you'll notice too that many of Luke's parables feature women. Another of Luke's central themes is the idea of reversal, that what the kingdom values is often not the same, sometimes the opposite of what the society of the day values. Matthew records Jesus saying that the last will be first and the first will be last, but Luke draws this idea out into several parables, most often taking place around meals. So these are the things that we want to look out for as we journey through Luke together over the next five weeks. Reversal, fulfillment of God's promises, uh, particularly regarding a Messiah, and hospitality and inclusion of those that otherwise would normally be excluded. As Nick points out, we're picking up the story midway through chapter 9. Um, this story of the transfiguration marks, uh, it's kind of a, a hinge in Luke's gospel. The first two chapters uh, serve as his introduction and the establishment of Jesus as the Messiah. And we read lots about the fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, Luke depicts the Holy Family as upright and righteous and law-abiding. In chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism and his extended genealogy. This section begins his ministry and serves as public affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah for whom Israel has been waiting. Further to Luke's key theme of reversal is this awareness that Jesus is not really the Messiah that Israel had been anticipating. Israel and Judah had long been conquered by other nations and empires, and when Jesus was alive, it was the Roman Empire who had invaded. A key component of Jewish hope for the Messiah, at least in Jesus' time, was the idea that they would be a military leader who might arrive leading heaven's army against colonizing powers, restoring Israel to its glory days under kings like David and Solomon. While Jesus certainly offers hope to all those who have been colonized or enslaved or marginalized, his intention in coming to earth was slightly more cosmic in scope than saving just one nation. As Christians, we understand that God created all things good, fit for their purpose, uh, and to be in right relationship with himself and, and the rest of creation. When humanity chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they made a decision to live outside of God's design, thus damaging relationship between themselves and God, and between themselves and the land that they lived upon, and even damaging relationships with other humans. We read these consequences of their actions in Genesis 3. 
This relationship damaging behavior we call sin. And we read that when sin separates us from God, the source of life, we experience death. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, it was understood that sin could only be removed from a person through some form of repayment. And so God established a covenant with Israel whereby the life of an animal was given to atone for the sins of a human. Alongside this means of atonement were 613 rules for human life, everything from don't murder other people through to rules on how to collect fruit from your fruit tree. Yet even with all these rules for living and a means for atonement, the people of God didn't conform their lives to God's design for it, nor did they experience right relationship with him. The world needed a savior. And so God himself entered creation as a human baby named Jesus. We read in John's gospel that he was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Jesus, who lived in perfect right relationship with God and the rest of creation, chose to give up his life as a once and for all atoning sacrifice for the sins of all creation. We celebrated his death last Friday, but more importantly, we celebrated his resurrection last Sunday, marking God's cosmic triumph over sin and death and our membership in God's family as his children and co-heirs with Christ. We now look forward to Jesus' return, whereby his kingdom will be among us in fullness, and we will live face-to-face in right relationship with God. We read in Revelation 21, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the old order of things has passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, says, see, I am making all things new. This doesn't mean we now lead a comfortable life, keeping a pew warm until Jesus returns. Rather, we live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul goes as far as to describe us as foreigners to this world, saying in 2 Corinthians 5 that, We ought to live as ambassadors or ministers of reconciliation because God has chosen us to represent his interests on this earth. If we look back to Genesis 1, we read that it's our role to steward the earth, to care for it as God does. And I think a part of that responsibility means telling others about the possibility of joining the family of God and experiencing true love, full life and absolute hope. So Luke is writing with the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's about to do, and is pointing us toward that at every point throughout the narrative. He structures this first part of his gospel around two confirmations from God that Jesus is the Messiah. The first comes in chapter three at his baptism, and the second here in chapter nine at the transfiguration. And from here, Jesus turns toward Jerusalem and his impending death. So with all that background covered, let's turn to the text. Verse 28 begins, now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. These previous sayings are recorded in verses 23 to 27. And we read Jesus saying this, if anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. 
What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So these words concern the death, resurrection and enthronement of Jesus as the Messiah and King of the kingdom of God, as well as some instructions for his followers and how they ought to live. Jesus takes these three disciples up the mountain to pray. And then we read that while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white, which is meant to imply an association with heaven. So we know that God is at work here. Then suddenly the three disciples saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to Jesus. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, it's significant that it was these two men that the disciples saw with Jesus. The Hebrew Bible loves to give us a a prototype before the real deal. And both Moses and Elijah served as kinds of messianic prototypes to the Jewish people. And in Jewish thought, both are expected to make a return along with the Messiah. And this prompts New Testament scholar Brendan Byrne to write, the appearance of these two fulfills the expectation that both would, in some sense, return to earth in the messianic age. Their presence completes the picture of messianic glory. From verse 32, we read, Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Mark, in his version of these events, also picks up on Peter seeming to have said something foolish when he writes, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And there's a little bit to unpack here. Um, Firstly, where we have Peter looking to build three dwellings is the word that we have in English, in the NRSV at least. Uh, in, In other versions, you might read the word booths, which is not any less confusing than the word dwelling. What Peter is referring to, though, is the festival of booths or tabernacles, uh, otherwise known as Sukkot in Hebrew. Sukkot is the the plural form of the word Sukkah, which is a temporary dwelling that you might make out of palm leaves or uh, similar plant material. Farmers would build these structures while they were out in the fields harvesting crops. So Sukkot was a harvest festival. But it doubled as a reminder of the Exodus when God led the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. Because while they traversed the desert for 40 years, they lived in similarly fragile and temporary dwellings. So Sukkot is a time to remember God's goodness and our dependence upon him. But it also anticipates the arrival of the Messiah, who will bring about a final salvation of the world. Peter's first mistake is in equating Jesus with Moses and Elijah. In his mind, they're all equally Messiah-like figures. And so it's appropriate to build each of them a booth or a dwelling. His second mistake is in attempting to prolong this glimpse of the divine Jesus. Jesus has only eight days earlier made it pretty clear that the Messiah has to suffer and die before any kind of fulfillment will take place. But Peter, like the other disciples, fails to grasp this. This prompts God himself, whose presence is often depicted in scripture as a cloud, to overshadow them. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. 
Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. And in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. There's an obvious parallel here to the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah at his baptism, uh, but also a reminder to Peter and the other disciples to listen to what Jesus has to say, most specifically about his impending death. Luke makes a very interesting word choice in speaking about Jesus' death in this passage. Uh, In English, verse 31 most often tells us that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were discussing his departure which we understand now to mean his death. If you have a King James Bible, though, you might read that they're discussing Jesus' decease, which is a more morbid kind of take on the word. The Greek word that Luke has chosen, though, is exodus, which is rarely used to describe death. It's only used one other time in the New Testament this way. We understand, though, that he's chosen it here for the obvious parallel with the Jewish exodus, ironically a connection that Peter had managed to make. So even in his word choice, Luke is trying to make it obvious to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who has been prophesied about through history to save all creation and create a means for all of us to be in right relationship with the creator of the universe. So what does any of this mean for us today? Well, at the heart of this passage is the fact that the disciples, not unlike the rest of the Jewish people, We're mistaken about who Jesus was and what his role was as the Messiah. Where the rest of Israel expected a conquering king or a military leader, the disciples might have expected a triumphal prophet or at least an influential rabbi. No one expected that Jesus would make the temple system irrelevant by offering people grace by faith alone instead of through the law. Nor was there an expectation that the Messiah would make a way for all creation to know God rather than just one people group. Most of all, no one anticipated that the Messiah would die to bring any of this about. While we might read this text and think the disciples should have really figured this all out a little bit sooner, I wonder to what extent their misunderstanding of Jesus was a choice. At this point, the disciples have given up a lot to follow Jesus, so surely he's not just going to go and die on them. They also love Jesus dearly. They don't want him to die. I wonder in what ways we also make choices to misunderstand Jesus. About 10 years ago, I was an intern at Q Baptist Church, uh, and I had a fairly miserable time of it. It's not a reflection on the church, just my own uh, abilities, skills, talents. Uh, At the same time as I finished up in that role, I was finishing up a, a degree of study, and I'd been working in the jewelry industry as a gemologist, Uh, as well as having done uh, a degree in international relations. Maybe I should explain a gemologist is someone who grades and identifies gemstones. Oftentimes I say gemologist and people hear germologist and they think maybe I was some kind of like medical scientist or something. I'm, I'm not. I had this big idea that I would return to the UK where I'd been living before I came to Australia. Uh, and I would work in jewelry at one of the big European auction houses. And I'd get to play with jewelry that belonged to royals and celebrities. And it was all going to be very, very glamorous. I'd even gone as far as to set up two internships, in, uh, one in London and an- another one in Milan. And just as I was about to book flights, I heard this sermon that was along the lines of how to listen to God, which uh, prompted me to get a little more disciplined in doing exactly that. 
And every time I would look to commit my impending move abroad to God, I would find him suggesting that I looked into youth ministry. Uh, and now at that time, uh, my church didn't have a youth ministry, so I really had no experience uh, as to what that would be like, except for this camping ministry, ESA, that I'd, I'd been participating in. But more importantly, my limited ministry experience had been pretty awful, and so I really had no interest in pursuing it. I tried many times to get out of doing anything about it, simply by ignoring God, uh, or trying to do just enough that I thought maybe God would get off my back. Um, I pretended for a long time that I wouldn't even know where to begin. How on earth does anyone become a pastor? I've got no idea. Uh, And then I sent a very short email to a generic email address at the BUV, uh, knowing that it was pretty unlikely that anyone checked pastoral leadership development and support at buv.org.au or whatever. It was an, an enormous email address. To cut a long story short, I ended up sending an email to a random person on the BUV website, and their response began, it's so weird that you've just emailed me, and I remember my heart sinking knowing that God was clearly at work uh, in whatever this was going to be. It turned out that this person had just begun in a role supporting youth pastors and had been given a list of names of people that the outgoing person thought had some potential for full-time ministry. Uh, This woman had had no way of contacting me, and here I was emailing her out of the blue before she'd even been announced uh, as taking this role. This person only ended up giving me one job description, which was the only job that I applied for, and it was a part-time role at what was then known as Beaumaris Baptist Church. Um, And I only applied to the job because I had a really terrible day at the jewelry store that I worked at, and I thought, yeah, get stuffed, I'm applying for other jobs. And, And now, 10 years later, I work at the Baptist College. Um, None of this is what I had intended to do, Uh, and there are many days where I wish that I was in an industry as fun and uncomplicated as jewellery, but eventually listening and following through on God's instruction has led me to a much more fulfilling life than I think I would have had otherwise. So I wonder if any of you this morning are avoiding following through on God's instruction, or perhaps you struggle to hear from God at all. I find it's something that um, our students at the college, it's one of the first questions that they want to ask in class, no matter what the class. How do you listen to God? How do you build relationship with God? How do I know when God's speaking to me? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've always been someone who struggled with the discipline of listening to God. I had an early mentor uh, who used to stress the importance of waking up an hour earlier than you need to each morning in order to read scripture and to pray and to listen to God. And I think I might have managed that once. Uh, I'm not much of a morning person, unfortunately. Um, That being said, I know that the discipline of time spent with God in prayer or reading scripture or in worship uh, is important for building a relationship with God. Another mentor later in life compared listening to God to brushing your teeth. Uh, If you want to avoid getting a bunch of dental work done, you've got to be disciplined in brushing your teeth twice a day. Similarly, if we want depth of relationship with God, And if we want to hear and understand his direction for us, then we need to build relationship with him through time spent in prayer, uh, scripture, and worship. It's also important that we build strong faith communities around ourselves too, because as much as we like to prioritize our personal relationship with God, we also like to prioritize our personal relationship with God. We also have a corporate relationship to God and a corporate responsibility for one another. When it comes to listening to God well, I often am put in mind of chapter 10 of John's gospel, where we hear Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd. 
He goes on to say in verses 14 to 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So they will be one flock and one shepherd. It talks about us knowing Jesus' voice, which I, I think is a bit like the days before your phone just told you uh, who's calling. And when someone would ring the house and you had no idea who was on the other end of the phone. There were some people whose voices I knew immediately. My grandmother used to call the house every single day uh, when I was a kid. But there were plenty of others that were less familiar to me. Listening to God, I think, is a bit like this in that we need to learn to identify his voice when we don't have any other clues from context. We need to practice the art of listening to God, and the way that we go about this is going to be a little bit different for each of us. Um, There are some really great books out there with exercises that will help us grow in this area. For others of us, it might just be a matter of making the time and building the discipline of sitting down to hear from God daily. Perhaps it's a matter of learning to do this communally, sitting down with our small groups or life groups to pray together and to discern what God might be saying to us. The way that we go about it, I don't think is important. But our text this morning makes it clear that we need to listen to Jesus and to do what he asks of us. We may not have the benefit of God appearing as a cloud to tell us so, but just like the parable of Lazarus and the rich man from later on in in Luke's gospel, we do have scripture through which God has spoken to his people for thousands of years. So as we wrap all this up, what can we say for sure? Well, we know that Jesus is the Messiah who has been prophesied about right from Genesis 3. We know that his death and resurrection have conquered sin and death, and now all creation can come and join the family of God. It's our job as followers of God to represent him on this earth, and a key component of this is to listen to him well. Each of us are different, though, and the way that we each go about this will probably be different. The one thing that we must do is dedicate time to listening to God and to implementing his direction for us. Let's pray together. Loving God, we're grateful uh, that you have saved us, that you have brought us and made a way for all creation to be in right relationship with you. We're grateful, God, for membership in your family uh, and for the way that you seek to build relationship with us. So God, as we go out into our weeks, we pray uh, that you would give us ears to hear your voice that you would help us to make time and space, no matter what that looks like, to listen to you well. And that, God, you would give us the boldness, the courage to step out in faith and to follow your instruction. We know that we may not always get it right, God, uh, but we know uh, that you love us and that you are for us, that you encourage us, and that we can step into the throne room of grace with boldness, um, knowing that we are loved by our Father God. Uh, So we ask for your blessing. Uh, on the rest of our time together and uh, on our weeks uh, as we depart. In Jesus' name, amen.